You ever miss out on some of the things that your dad uh, maybe should have taught you? Uh, there, there are probably some things that your dad should have taught you and you uh, maybe missed out on one of those things. Or in my case, uh, probably did teach me, uh, but I just completely failed to listen. Uh, one of those things is backing up a trailer, right? Or like backing up like a boat trailer or a regular trailer. Some people in this world, probably like 2% are actually good at that. And then I'm part of the 98% that are not. Are you with me? Is there anybody with me that, okay, awesome. Thank two ladies. Good. Good, okay, I'm going to have to have some counseling after that, but okay, so um, I am terrible at it, like I cannot back up a trailer, it doesn't make any sense, you turn the wheel to the right, the thing, I, mean, I just don't understand how the thing backs up, it, trailers should not back up, like I, I get so confused that I just, I just simply just unhook it and just move it myself, I mean it's like, <laughs> like a ton of weight, just like I'm trying to push this thing up my driveway, I, I, I hate it, like I cannot back up a trailer for the life of me, it just for some odd reason does not work to go backwards, I, I just don't think that there's some things in this life that you should see backwards or go in reverse okay so like i had a friend of mine who uh went through birthing class and most of you have probably been through some kind of birthing class maybe with your first child i had a friend of mine that went through one it was and it was video day right which is like for guys it's like the worst day of the whole thing uh but video day and and this is back like he says like the the instructor this lady like pulls out a vhs tape right of this of this birth and and she puts it in the in the player you know as if this is 1988 or something like that puts it in the player and somebody wasn't kind to rewind and so he said it was the most tragic and awful thing to watch this thing in reverse okay so it's it's just like this terrible story of a doctor shoving a baby uh back and making this this lady be in in terrible pain uh and, and so things some things shouldn't be backwards. Now, there's some things that do work out well backwards. I actually was watching this movie a little bit oh, last night. It was on ABC Family. Uh, but Titanic is actually a heartwarming story of a boat that comes out of the ocean, saves a bunch of drowning people, and, uh, and they go dancing after that. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. So some things are better in reverse. Now, some things are a little bit confusing, whether they are in reverse or, in, uh, or going forward. Uh, there are these things, I love these things, I like to find them, uh, called palindromes. And these are words that uh, are spelled the same way, frontwards and backwards, okay? And some of them are up here on the, on the board. You have words like, uh, I think, civic is one, race car is one, uh, stats, kayak, rotator, are all good words. Now, one of the, we actually live very close to, right down 176, one of the, uh, one of the largest, uh, actually, places in the world that is a palindrome, Wasimasaw, which is right down the road, uh, which is an 11-letter, I think 11-letter, if I counted right, uh, palindrome, which is cool. I mean, you can't figure out whether it's going to go backwards or forwards. It doesn't know. It's a little bit confused about that. Of course, there's some classics about whether things go backwards or forwards. You know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? It's a philosophical question uh, about did the chicken come first? Did the egg come first? I don't know. And people debate that all over the place. Of course, I had two baseball coaches, very confusing time in my life, uh, where I had two baseball coaches. One, I had one one year and then the next, the other year. And they would say these things. The first year coach would say, what you do on the field shows me who you are. And he like this big, you know, pep chant to, you know, what you do on the field. That's going to show me what's inside. Of course, the next year, I have a coach that says, what's inside is going to come out onto the field, right? So I'm just so confused at like six or seven years old. Is it, is it what's inside of me that, that determines what I do, or is it what I do on the field determines who I am? 
uh, confused. They need to really coordinate these things at T-ball level, okay? Because you, you tend to be completely confused about your identity. Now, here's the philosophical question that we're going to pursue over the next several weeks, which is, uh, is it what we do that determines who we are? Or is it the other way around? Is it who we are that determines what we do? Of course, The Wonder Years is this kind of uh, wonderful little you know, TV series that is, you know, it's, it's a coming-of-age type thing. It's, it's a story about how these kids kind of determined who they were. And we're going to figure out, okay, God has led us this far in three years, and we, we know who we are in Christ, and it's going to then determine what we, what we do. But the question, I think, personally for us all is... Is it who we are? Is it who we are that determines our actions? Or is it what we do? Because I think in, a, in our world, in our culture, it's a culture that screams, you are merely the sum of your actions. You are merely the sum of what you do. Is that true? So we're going to look in Isaiah uh, chapter 6. So if you have a Bible... Uh, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is kind of in the middle of the Bible. Uh, Isaiah is a big, long book, somewhat poetic in nature. Uh, it is a prophetic book. So if you, have a, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there or on your iPad or whatever. If you have a phone that gets uh, the Version app, it's also on there. All my notes are listed on there. You can use those. would love for you to use any type of technology that you wish uh, to read, uh, to catch up with us uh, with Isaiah chapter 6. Very famous passage of Scripture. Love this passage of Scripture. Some of you may have already read this or known about it, um, but it's an incredible picture of, uh, of who God is and what we are supposed to do in response to who he is. So Isaiah chapter 6, uh, we're going to read the first eight verses. It says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people who are of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. So we have in this passage, it starts out a little bit interesting. I'm going to give you a little context as to what is happening at this point. You have this Isaiah who is a prophet of God, one who speaks as a messenger of God to the people. Pretty important dude, pretty close to the Lord. And uh, he says, first of all, in the year that, the, that King Uzziah died. Now, uh, we could throw this little piece away 
or we can understand its context. King Uzziah was actually a very, very popular and also successful king of Israel. For most of his reign, he followed the Lord pretty closely. Very in touch with who God was, worshipped, led the people to worship God, and because of that, was very successful, very prosperous. Actually, one of the only kings after the reign of Solomon that was actually pretty prosperous, mainly because he followed who God was. And so he spent most of his reign doing that. Now, towards the end, though, began to really kind of, uh, I guess, lean on some of these successes, lean on some of this prosperity, lean on his own devices, and things began to go downhill uh, from there. And Uzziah's reign actually ended very, very poorly. Uh, the, the people uh, began to revolt. The people began to, um, uh, to fall away from the Lord altogether. They were in the midst of possible uh, corruption or the, the midst of possible like being taken over by another kingdom altogether. So the identity that, that the people of Israel during the reign of Uzziah was, was very high. I mean, they were up on a pedestal. They were doing really well. They were one of the most prosperous nations in the entire world, and they let that go to their head because that's who their identity was. Their identity was found in their success. Their identity was found in their prosperity. And um, when that began to falter, they really began to kind of, where, where's my identity? I'm a little bit lost. And so they, they kind of look and they say, well, where is our king? What is our king doing? How is our king going to lead us? And so Isaiah says very clearly, Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Uzziah is dead. And so their identity is lost. No idea who they were. No idea what their purpose should be. And as we begin this passage, we see that Isaiah, in that year, a very consequential year in the reign of Israel, um, Isaiah has a vision of God. Not really sure how this happened, whether he was sleeping and had this dream of who God was or simply that, that he had this, this supernatural occurrence in his life where he was taken up and, and he was able to behold who God was, but he certainly had a vision, right? And what he sees is God literally on his throne. It says the train of his robe fills the temple, very symbolic of the, of the power and sovereignty and glory of God. And all of this language is to display the holiness and goodness and glory of God. And you have these creatures that it kind of talks about, these seraphim or angels. Seraphim actually means burning ones. Ones that are present with, with the king at all times. And we know from other pieces of scripture that any time, especially Moses, having spent time with God, actually came away, to, when he came away from being with God, it said that his skin and his face would glow just from being in the presence of God. So you have these creatures that God created, and it says they have six wings, right? And they fly around and hover around God's, uh, God's throne, and they are burning, literally. It means burning ones. And what they do consistently is worship the God in which they serve. Shouting to one another and declaring and delighting in the holiness of God at all times. And saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what they're saying there is it's not just repetition. It's not just like God is 
one plus one plus one, kind of this addition narrative, right? I mean, that's, that's not what it's talking about. What it means by holy, holy, holy is this kind of multiplication effect or, you know, perfection times perfection times perfection. Basically saying that God is completely different than anything, even completely different than the seraphim themselves. There's this massive gap between the goodness and glory of God and everything else in creation. There's this glorious tone. Sometimes we think about God as if he's just kind of a better version or happier version than us. (laughs) But what we see in this passage is this reign of God that is completely other, completely different. Holy, holy, holy. Perfection upon perfection and completely other. And what the Bible has to say about that in numerous places, but I'll just give you two. These are, you don't have to turn here, but Psalm 29 speaks of the Lord in this way. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The psalmist is talking about just the splendor and goodness of God and how the heavenly beings, like the seraphim, will worship him. Moses says this in Exodus uh, 15, 11. He says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? They're just trying to explain at this point, and it's very difficult probably to put in human words the glory of God and what he was seeing. And so we have some different types of language where it's just like these wings that cover their face and cover their feet and with two they fly and then you have this burning coal involved. I mean, so there's all this big language that probably is heavenly and what he's trying to explain is something inexplicable but he's trying to put it in earthly language. And what, he's, what he says is not only is that God is holy, 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 perfection, absolutely, but he says this, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Here's the good news about that. I love that passage. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. What that means is what Isaiah is seeing in this throne room of God is that, there, that the earth is an extension of that temple. And how the robe fills, his sovereignty fills, his grace fills, his faithfulness fills the earth with his glory. That it is, it is a complete extension. And it is God's will. If you're ever wondering what God's will is, God's will is to fill the earth with his glory. And that's why Jesus teaches us to, to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, what does it say? Holy, or hallowed, holy is his name. What does it say next? Your kingdom, the temple, the throne room, the kingdom, what? Your will be done where? On earth, as it is in heaven. Jesus has seen this. What Isaiah is seeing, Jesus has seen clearly. He lived it for all of eternity. Jesus knows what this is and tells his disciples, this is how you should pray. That the holiness of God should fill the earth and that we should pray for his kingdom to come. And his will be done here as it is in heaven. Because he has seen this, the same thing 
that Isaiah has seen. And the greatness of that is that God is not selfish at all or hoarding uh, his glory. He wants it to be seen. He desires for us to experience his kingdom in a good way. And so Isaiah sees this completely adequate God. He is more than adequate, wholly adequate. He is completely satisfied in every single way. God is not longing for something, and he is not in need of anything and desires to take everything that he has and spread it to those who he loves. And so he desires for this to be known. We see this. If you want to turn to this, I'll be here for a, for a minute or so. Uh, Psalm 148. Psalm 148. If you just go backwards a little bit in your Bible. Psalm 148 says this. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels, like the seraphim. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. And he gave a decree and it shall not pass away. And so what we see here is this magnificent presence where the psalmist is saying that God has created not only what you see, but everything in the universe. That all of that, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxy, the expanding universe, all of that is created by God and it is all giving him glory. Every single bit of it. I was reading this week, there's, there's these things in, this, in, the, in the universe that, we, that are hundreds of light years, thousands of light years away called pulsars, which are whole galaxies and whole stars that literally, as they turn on their axis, make noise. They sing songs. They make, they make these beautiful songs to glorify God. And they've been doing this for thousands of years since their creation, since God made them. And there's things that we can't even see with modern technology that God has created that are singing the praises of God. And he deserves every bit of it. And then he brings it down, the psalmist brings it down to the earth. And he says this in verse 7, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all, uh, uh, in all deeps, Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted and his majesty is above earth and heaven. So not only do we have these magnificent planets and galaxies who are singing and praising the Lord for he is for he is glorious and good but he brings it down and he says not only that but the earth sings its glory you have these sea creatures whales who sing songs to the glory of God birds and creatures who live their lives as creations of God and then he brings it down to us right every man woman and child who he has a very special relationship with, that he said in their very creation that they were very good, that the human race was very good, one that he would have a very special relationship with because he created us in his image. 
and we are also to give glory to God in a very special way. He created all of it so that we can bring praise to his name. And what we see because of this, and what we see in Psalm 148, and what we see happening in Isaiah 6, is that God is being worshipped all the time. Every single moment of every single day, God is being worshipped because he deserves it. Because he deserves the glory. He deserves the honor. And he is worthy of every single bit of it. He has given life. He has given grace. He has put his fingertips on every piece of creation. He, he deserves every piece because he has perfectly constructed all things. And what we think sometimes is that the worship of God starts when we walk into a room on Sunday morning for an hour. That God possibly is just waiting on us. That his tank is empty. Well, I hope they get there soon, man. I really hope that I hope they have the band together. Man, you guys need to get it together. Why don't they have a bass player today? For goodness sakes, I need to deserve glory. Like, I mean, that's not what God says. That's not what he's thinking. He's not thinking, oh, well, I mean, you know, I'm not really sure. They, you know, they, they sing four songs instead of five songs today, so I'm going to be a little weaker this week. I mean, that's not, that's not what's happening here. We see the worship of God. He is completely content, completely consistent, filled and satisfied at all times. And therefore, and this is what I want us to get, because this is important. If we have a serve a God who is completely satisfied, joyful, at all times, has been since eternity past, and will be for eternity future, if he is completely satisfied and needs absolutely nothing from us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He does not need anything that we could possibly provide. He doesn't need our good deeds. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our songs. He doesn't need anything from us. And this is a serious blow to our identity. To our identity. Because our identity is based upon being needed for something. That what we produce, the actions in which we do every single week means something. Or else, who are we? Are we not the sum of our actions? Are we not loved by God because of what we do? And so we lose our identity, and this is the very reason, and we become completely lost. And that's why when Isaiah comes into the room, and he sees a magnificent and glorious God who is completely satisfied, needs nothing from us, and Isaiah comes into the room, and what does he say first? Whoa! And not like, whoa, like a surfer, you know, not like that. But what does he say? Woe is me! I am lost. I am lost. And what he is saying, maybe in our language, is, I don't even know who I am. In front of that, in comparison to the great God of the universe, what am I? Who am I? I see a God who is completely satisfied, who needs nothing from me. What is my purpose? Why do I exist? 
And his identity is completely crushed at that point. And all he has to say is, I am lost. I am, not, he goes a step forward, I am unclean. I am sinful. And not only am I unclean, but I live amongst the people who are unclean who are a people who are sinful. So not only is it my life, but it's everything that I know to be normal is unclean and sinful. And this is at the very heart of the gospel. And if we can understand this idea, see, we we come from a culture that believes that the good things that we do will earn us favor with God. As if God really needs our stuff. But when we come to a place where we understand the full, the full weight of the gospel, the full weight that, of what God has for us, it is we are completely helpless, just like, just like Isaiah. And that we desperately need God. There's nothing that we can do that will earn the favor of God. There's nothing that God needs from us. And so therefore, if there's nothing that God needs for us, the only action that can take place is not our action, but God's action. We are completely inadequate to do anything for ourselves. And so we see his position in comparison with God. And so what happens is you have this seraphim, this this heavenly creature taking a burning coal um, you know, with tongs. I'm not really sure. I mean, you have a burning creature taking a burning piece of coal. You know, so I'm sure that, you know, I'm not sure what the tongs represent, but, you know, hey, whatever. And so he, he takes this burning coal and brings it over to Isaiah and touches it to his lips, symbolically, symbolically taking away and forgiving his sins. And this is the cleansing grace of God. That, yes, he was lost and woefully inadequate, woefully sinful, completely without purpose, and God takes his cleansing forgiveness, he takes his atonement, and touches Isaiah. Touches him. And he is cleansed. We know this now as a foretaste of the gospel. The foretaste of Jesus Christ. Coming to be just like one of us, but without sin. Knowing full well that he is the one who sacrificed himself for us. So that he can be the atoning sacrifice. So that he can be the glory of God on a cross. Taking away our sin and then allowing us basically for, for, uh, to, to touch into this. When Jesus died on the cross, it's as if the angel came and touched us with the coal. Taking a people who are woefully inadequate and making them whole again. And at this moment, here's the glory of it, at this moment, Isaiah, who was lost and without identity, is now given back an identity. He now has a purpose. He is now saved. He is now not lost anymore. Because why? Because I love this language. Because I have seen, what? The king. My identity is not in myself anymore. It's not in the kingdom of Israel anymore. It's not in King Uzziah anymore, who is dead. My identity is now in the king, the Lord of hosts, the king of all kings, the Lord of, the Lord, the Lord of lords. That's who his, who his identity is found in. And it's wrapped up into the story of God. And he has a clear vision of God at that point. 
And so he is so consumed by God that the next question that God asks is actually a no-brainer. Right? But first, let me make sure that you understand. Earlier I said that God doesn't need us. And that's absolutely true. But, out of the goodness of who God is, out of a benevolent, glorious, and good king, even though he doesn't need us, he wants us. And there's a big difference between that. It says in the scripture that God desires men to come to him. That he wants them. He loves them. And although he has no need of us, he desires to partner with us in life. That he desires us. He desires relationship with us. Not because he has any need, but because we have great need. And we need to have our identity found in him. And so when we have a clear, very clear picture of God and very clear picture of who we are because of who God is, he then asks a question. He says, who will go? Who will go for us? And Isaiah's answer is so quick, and I love it. Here I am! Send me! That's me! I have been so gloriously forgiven I have now, I was lost without any type of identity. And now I have an identity in Christ that God's story is now my story. And that he's asking me a very simple question and saying, who will go for us? Me. That's me. I want to go. He doesn't check his calendar. <laughs> he doesn't check his schedule. He doesn't, he doesn't post it on Facebook and see if people, you know, think that's a good decision. Like, he doesn't check his kid's sports schedule. He doesn't see, you know, under, I wonder if this will work out. He doesn't do all those things. God has miraculously forgiven him and given him an identity and says, who will go for us? Me! Quickly, me! Send me! Because as soon as he has a conference, uh, as soon as he has a moment with God, as soon as God gracefully forgives him of all sin, and as soon as God asks for someone to be commissioned, Isaiah is very quick to say, here I am. Because who he is determines what he does. It's who he is. And the same is true for us. If we have a clear vision of who God is, and a clear encounter with the God of the universe, it will be very clear who we are. And then, therefore, it will determine what we do. It's a pretty simple deal. It's a very simple deal. Now, God, being completely adequate, is, I mean, so God uses us in all sorts of various ways. I was at Lowe's the other day. <laughs> uh, me and my son, Haddon, who's four, uh, we were at Lowe's, and I was um, buying a sheet of uh, a sheet of plywood. And so, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, it's the only thing I had. So I was just like, I'm just going to carry this thing rather than get a cart involved and all sorts of stuff. And so I've got this sheet of plywood, and I check out with it. And at that point, Haddon decides that he wants to help me, Right? Uh, and I'm not sure if you've ever done this with a four-year-old boy, but he, he really doesn't want to help because he sees like this huge piece of, you know, piece of work. I mean, and I'm, you know, struggling to get to the car. And what does Haddon do? Naturally, he wants to be a part of the process. 
he, you know, he loves his father. He wants to be involved with his father. He says, here I am, send me. What does he do? Grabs onto it. He makes it so much harder at that point. I mean, it's, it's so much harder. But there's no way in the world as a loving father I'm going to say to my son, stop. Stop it. I don't need your help. I don't want you. I don't need you. And I didn't need him. But I wanted him because I love him. I want him to have the experience of being a part of something his father does. And the same is true with God. He uses sinful, broken, easy to, I mean, some, some of us like me are just stubborn for goodness sakes. And I'm very difficult to work with, right? I'm just a jerk sometimes and I understand that. Maybe you can, maybe you can identify with that, right? And God has to forgive me of sin constantly. He has to deal with me constantly. He has to deal with my dirtiness. He has to deal with my anger. He has to deal with my personality. And he says, I I want your help. I want your partnership. I want you. And so I'm going to call you out and say, are you going to, who is going to go? And I lift up my hand because I've had an encounter with God. And I say, here I am, send me. And so we, this is a natural progression it's not as if, now here's the question that is now put before us. If, if we do have an encounter with God, if we do come to the place of atonement, if we, if we do come to the place of forgiveness of sins where we've had a clear picture of God, is it possible for any of us who call ourselves Christians, who call ourselves forgiven, to say, think that that's even possible. <laughs> Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorite, favorite uh, preachers, theologians, said this, and it's a very harsh statement. It says, Christians are either missionaries or they're imposters. Because he knew this truth. He understood that if we have a real clear vision of who God is, and we know him and been forgiven by him, then it is impossible for us not to be commissioned with the gospel. And so he has said, very clearly and definitively, Christians, we are either missionaries or we are imposters. And that's a hard statement, but it's true. I have a a friend of mine who um, works with missionaries in Egypt. And uh, he was telling me the story. There was a uh, a missionary that, that he, an Egyptian missionary, a man who who was born in Egypt and, and, and was raised and actually came to know the Lord in Egypt. And, has, and now uh, pastors underground churches in Egypt. And uh, he goes and, and makes relationships with people so that he can spread the gospel with people. And, uh, and so he goes to the same barber all the time. Same barber. You know, every time he needs a haircut, goes back and back and back and, and always tells him a, a, you know, a little bit more of the gospel story and how Jesus can change his barber's life. And so he, uh, one day he walks into the barber shop just like normal, hoping, hoping to have an intentional conversation with the barber. And as soon as he walks in, the barber uh, walks behind him, closes the door, locks the door, pulls down all the shades. And at this point, he's getting a little scared, right? What is, about, what is this guy about to do with him? He's got like sharp razors and stuff. Well, I mean, what is this guy going to do to me? And he says, sit down. And they both sit down. And the barber says, I've heard everything that you have to say. I've heard everything about this Jesus. And I've decided that I want to become a Christian, and I need you to tell me how I should become a Christian. 
And now most of us, if that was me, in, you know, sitting in that store, I'd be like, all right, let's do this. All right, here we, here we go. Let's pray. You got some water? We'll get you baptized right now. All right, we'll just, we'll do this. It's time to go, right? Instead, this missionary looks back at him and says, let's talk about this for a second. If you decide to follow Jesus in this culture that does not accept Jesus, does not accept it normally, does not praise it, will actually look upon it hostily, you have to understand that before you do this, that this barbershop now serves as a haven for missionary behavior. And he says, you have to understand that if you become a Christian, that every single client that sits in this chair, you are to tell the gospel to. That every single person that walks into this in your influence is now a candidate to hear, the, hear, hear about Jesus. And if you're not willing to do that, you're not willing to become a Christian. That's pretty tough. Pretty tough words to live in a culture like that. But it is the same story that we should have. That if we have a clear picture of who God is, then it determines what we do. At the Church of Cain Bay, this works itself out in two ways. And if you're taking notes, you can take these two things down. We believe that you should have two different domains or two different responsibilities. Because of who we are determines what we do. This happens in two ways. The first is personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. This is that every single person, if you are a Christian in this room, that every single person in your influence, which means every, every person that where you live, work, and play, is a candidate to hear the gospel from you. And you are responsible for them. That each one of your neighbors that is around your house, you are responsible for them. That each one of your coworkers that you work with every day, that, you're, that you are the one who is responsible for them, for them to hear the gospel. Not, not me, not me. Don't bring them to hear, you know, hear the gospel from me. That's, it's you. They are your friends. They are your people that you have influence over, that you have a relationship with. You don't need to bring them to, 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 to the professionals. It's your job. And if, God has, has, if you've had an intimate experience with the atonement of God, you have full capability to tell them about your relationship with Jesus. So where you, work, where you live and where you work and where you play, you are personally responsible for every single person in your influence. Secondly, we have a corporate responsibility. We have a corporate responsibility. We believe, and you probably heard this if you've been around the Church of Cane Bay for any amount of time, we believe that the Church of Cane Bay, we are responsible for a 10-mile radius around this church. That we believe that we are responsible for every man, woman, and child to have multiple opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. That's our job. There's 70,000 people within that circle. And we believe that it is our job and responsibility to reach every single one of them. And not just give them one shot at the gospel, but to give them multiple opportunities to hear that gospel. And how we have done this is we've broken up into very specific groups. And we call them missional communities. So that every single man, woman, and child inside of Cane Bay Elementary School would have multiple opportunities to hear the gospel. So that every single man, woman, and child inside of a military family, inside of our 10-mile radius, has multiple opportunities to, hear, to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. That every single man, woman, and child involved with Eagle Harbor Ranch would hear the gospel, be able to give multiple opportunities to hear, see, and respond to the gospel. And Cane Bay High School, and Cane Bay Middle School, and, and foster care families all over our 10-mile radius would be given multiple opportunities to hear, see, and respond to the gospel that's our call that's our responsibility we have a corporate responsibility to do that and so i would ask you are you ready because next week we start 
and I want you to be part of one of, part of, one of these groups that is going to be doing this. To not only take a personal responsibility for your neighbors, but also be a part of a group that takes corporate responsibility. That we all say, when we sign this form and go to missional community and be involved and tell our neighbors that what we're saying very clearly to a lost world is, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Because it's who we are that determines what we do. Let's pray together. God, you are gracious and good. Thank you for this dream that Isaiah had, this vision of you, very clear picture of who you are, displayed for us how you are in your splendor. It is probably much grander and much bigger than Isaiah could even speak of. And I'm really looking forward to seeing it with my own eyes. God, I do pray for the one in this room who is listening to all of this and singing and, and saying, I really don't know about what he's talking about. Father, I pray that the question would then turn to, I want to know more. What do I need to know? So God, that, that you would work in their hearts today. And God, that you would call a people to yourself. That you would call this church out into being missionaries for you and your kingdom. And so, God, I ask simply that you would show yourself clearly, that you would show yourself so that we might be able to see your glory and your splendor because we want to be changed by you and then our actions will then be determined by who we are. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Give a clear call, folks. Let's stand up and sing.